Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 38, Owen McEwen. More great unpublished history. Owen McEwen was a member of the 5th Scottish Parachute Battalion. We're going to hear about his adventures in France, Italy, Greece, Singapore and Indonesia. And what a great new set of revelations we're about to learn about the war. There'll be some paradoxical encounters with Greek resistance fighters and even more legal hysterics on the back of a mutiny by the British soldiers. Sunday, 26th of March. We were informed the whole brigade was being transferred from the east to the west to join the Poles in an attack on Casino. 12th of May. Heaviest barrage of history last night when we put in our big thrust for Rome. 2,000 guns opened up for 40 minutes. Non-stop firing. Polish division captured Monastery Hill. 9th of March. 19 ex-POWs brought in by 9 platoon patrol. 4 Yanks, 2 New Zealanders, 2 British, 11 Yugos. 15th of August. Some small arms fire as we dropped. A thick ground mist led us to believe we'd misjudged our timing. Bill Gooden called in the darkness and placed his hand on mine. It was all cold and wet. I said, my God, Bill, you've copped it already. Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published in hardback by pen and sword, in fighting through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. My dad fought at Dunkirk, North Africa, Sicily, D-Day and Germany. The aim of the Fighting Through podcast is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. Before we get in too deep with the show, have you come down to earth yet after listening to Captain Stan Perry in the last episode? Judging by the comments I've had, a lot of people enjoyed it. I've got some lovely feedback to share with you about how Stan's episode affected his family who were listening. Here you go. Thank you. It's amazing and something for the family to treasure. Stan Perry and Kathy. That's the man himself and his daughter. And Nicola, Stan's granddaughter, who lives in Australia, said, I've just finished listening to the two episodes of your podcast featuring your interview of my granddad. They were absolutely wonderful. What an amazing memory they'll make to pass down the generations. I just wanted to thank you for what you're doing. I think it's incredible and I'm now hooked. Now, I've had a lot of feedback on the Stan Perry episode and uh, far too much to uh, relate here. So what I've decided to do, um, because in particular, a lot of people who haven't even heard the Stan episode won't really be able to relate to the feedback that well. So um what I'm going to do, I'm going to create a separate episode as an additional bonus episode, if you like, and it's going to follow on straight after this one. Just a tidbit of news to share with you. Uh, thanks to listener Salim Parak, who's uh, written to me about the episode 13, Danger, Unexploded 
bomb. He sent me a link to a YouTube video about a TV drama which explains about disarming bombs. It's uh, quite a good uh, TV TV series called Danger Unexploded Bomb. So uh, it's a perfect accompaniment to episode 13. And if you haven't seen episode 13 before... I'd recommend you go and see this uh, video first so you understand a bit more of the, about the technical background if you're that way inclined. So uh, I've put a link in the show notes and thanks again, Salim, for uh, writing in on that. Fascinating. Now, one final thing before we start. I recently put up a survey on my website just asking nine simple questions. So if you've got time to complete one, I'd be very grateful. And thank you so much to those people who've already responded via the link on Facebook. And I have to say, there's been some great feedback and ideas so far, which I will be sharing with you soon. The story of Sergeant Owen McEwen starts with Twitter. Ross Cleland had posted some photos of diary pages, which his great-uncle Owen had written, and it had attracted a serious number of likes, so I thought I'd wade in and have a read. My great-uncle Owen passed away a fortnight ago, August 2018, and when we were sorting his things, we found his World War II diary. I took the opportunity to contact Ross, and uh, he's kindly helped me to dig out some more information about his great-uncle and uh, given permission for the diary pages to be used in this podcast. So uh, so I hope I can do your great-uncle proud, Ross. He certainly got a great experience to share with everybody. But how good is that, digging around in the loft and finding a, a World War II memoir just like that? Fantastic. Anyway, here's a bit more information about Owen from Ross. From 17 years old, he fought across Europe and Africa, a true British hero who gave my generation lasting peace. When he left school, Owen was an apprentice coach builder. In 1940, all his mates were getting called up. Some he knew were being sent to work in the local coal mines, but no way did Owen want to work in a pit. On his 18th birthday, he told his mother he was going to join up. So he volunteered and joined the famous Black Watch 3rd Battalion Royal Regiment of Scotland. In less than a year, he found himself chosen to join the crack Special Forces, 5th Scottish Parachute Battalion. According to Wikipedia, the battalion was formed in May 1942 and became part of the 2nd Parachute Brigade. It was deployed to North Africa and took part in the seaborne landings in Italy in September 1943. It actually operated as line infantry in Italy, jumped into southern France in August 44, and was part of the Athens Occupation Force in the winter of 44-45. Now Owen's diary actually begins in 1943, so I'm not too sure what he got up to in the years before that, but uh, here we go, and there are roughly one to three days between each entry. Monday, 19th of July, 1943. Joined the Parachute Regiment at Chesterfield, just south of Sheffield in Yorkshire, England. First two weeks was an intensive PT course, followed by one-week battle school. 8th of August, did a forced para-march to Ringway Aerodrome, 
29 miles. Started synthetic training, that's simulated parachute jumping. Did first and second balloon jumps from 800 feet. Then we did five aircraft jumps from Whitley Aircraft. After that we did a night balloon jump. At the end of August we did a PT course followed by a one-week battle course. Middle of September we embarked on the ship Athlone Castle at Liverpool Docks. We were anchored in the River Mersey all night. 12th of September we sailed to Glasgow, Scotland and anchored in the River Clyde. Left Clyde, bound for unknown destination. We passed the Irish coast at noon. The sea was very calm and we had our first payday, ten shillings. I put the watch back one hour. All mail written and put off at Gibraltar. Then we landed and disembarked Talgiers. We travelled in cattle trucks for Bizete on the northern tip of Tunisia, arriving two days later where we camped in an African village. 13th of November. Intensive training. Preparing for active service in Italy. Listener, it's interesting that at this point my dad's battle of Wadiakaris in Tunisia had taken place back in March. We're now in November. And by this time, Dad had already landed and won the battle for Sicily in August 43, setting the scene for the next fight. The battle for Italy began just a few weeks later on 3rd of September 43 with the landings at Salerno, four years to the day from when Britain declared war on Germany. So we're now going to learn what Owen gets up to in taking the war to Italy. Owen told his local newspaper, the Kirk and Tillich Herald, there's a link in the show notes, that his mission was to destroy all the roads from Italy to France. This meant the Germans had to move all their forces by boat, and our navy was waiting for them. Italy, Sunday, 14th November, 1943. Left Biserte and sailed for Italy. Now, Wikipedia explains that eliminating Italy from the war would enable Allied naval forces to dominate the Mediterranean Sea and securing many lines of communication with other countries and regions. Now, I can appreciate this particularly when I reflect on Dad's long journey to Egypt on the Queen Mary because the reason he sailed such a long roundabout route around the Horn of Africa was that at that time... The Mediterranean Sea wasn't safe, otherwise it would have been the easiest thing ever just to sail across the Med. Another effect of attacking Italy was that the Italian divisions on duties elsewhere, such as France, would have to be withdrawn. And the Germans would have to transfer troops from the Eastern Front to help out. Forces of the British 8th Army, still under Montgomery, landed on the toe of Italy on 3rd of September 1943. That same day, the Italian government agreed to an armistice with the Allies, so interestingly, we actually didn't fight the Italian army on Italian soil. So the German forces now had to defend without Italian assistance, and only two of their divisions weren't tied up disarming the Royal Italian Army. 
I'm not sure I can summarise this campaign much better than actually quoting the blurb from a new book that's out through Pen and Sword. It's called Monte Cassino by Richard Doherty. And he says, One of the bloodiest battles of the Second World War was that from January to June 44 for the Gustav Line, anchored on Monte Cassino, famous for its Benedictine Abbey. Better known as the Battle of Cassino, the campaign only ended when Rome was liberated, with General Sir Harold Alexander in overall command. The Allied Army Group in Italy consisted of 5th US and 8th British Armies. Both were truly multinational, with some 20 Allied nations involved. There's a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And uh, if you buy anything through my uh, affiliate links, then I will get a small token of cash, uh, which will help towards the running costs of the show. But I would stress you won't pay any more if you use my links. So, on 9th of September 1943... Forces of the US 5th Army under Lieutenant General Mark W. Clark, expecting little resistance, landed against heavy German resistance at Salerno in Operation Avalanche. At the same time, British forces landed at Taranto in Operation Slapstick, which was almost unopposed. Our man Owen was there. They must have known Owen was coming. The Allies had hoped that with the Italian surrender, the Germans would withdraw to the north, but this wasn't to be. For a while, the British 8th Army made fairly easy progress up the eastern coast, capturing the port of Bari and several important airfields. But the Germans nevertheless came close to repelling the American Salerno landing on the other side of the coast. The main Allied effort in the west initially centred on the port of Naples. As the Allies advanced, they encountered increasingly difficult terrain, comprising mountains, ridges and rivers, which at times were relatively easy to defend. It took four major offensives between January and May 1944, before the line was eventually broken by a combined assault of the 5th and 8th Armies, including British, American, French, Polish and Canadian Corps. Concentrated along a 20-mile front, between Monte Cassino and the western seaboard. So, a long nine months of grinding Italian action awaits Owen and his comrades. So I hope all that's a helpful background to Owen's diary, which I'll now carry on with, uh, hopefully without too much interruption. Wednesday the 17th of November, 1943. Docked at Taranto, southeast end of Italy. 20th of November, joined 5th Scottish Battalion at Aquaviva, a few miles inland. Had an interview with the commanding officer, Captain Hunter, and was posted to 5 Section 9 Platoon. The battalion moved by truck to Goya, arriving 2200 hours, about 20 miles from enemy lines. We then moved up closer and defended a bridge over the Marino River, no opposition. We moved up and joined the rest of the company in the front line. One man killed, one man injured. Captured. C Company patrol killed one jerry and captured four, injured. We moved further up the east side of the country to Resolenia. 
sent a recce patrol to an occupied zone, was informed our prisoner held there. Saw Jerry burn and destroy a town. Torricella, presumably preparing to withdraw. We moved into the Sangro River area. Listener, this is about halfway up the country now, and on the opposite side of the land to Rome, so getting way in there now. 12th of December, moved to left flank, an area known as Hell's Corner. Jerry was only about half a mile away, and we were under constant shell and mortar fire, most uncomfortable. In the trenches constantly now, on alert day and night, also on patrol frequently. We saw the RAF bomb Ortana for a couple of days. Moved to German flank, still under heavy mortar fire. Moved back out of line for a few days' rest. Leave was cut short. Jerry located in the next village, Palambossa. We were ordered in. Killed and captured several. Christmas Day. Bully and biscuits for breakfast, in trenches day and night, pouring with rain. Boxing Day we marched seven miles in sleet and rain to Castle de Sangro. Moved further back to Castle Frontano, six miles. 1st of January, New Year's Day. Snowed up, had to clear one mile of roadway to get rations through. Went to assist C Company out of snowed up position. 3rd of Jan, moved into concentration area, Lanciano. 4th of Jan, moved up between New Zealand and Canadians, near Pescaro. Pinned down and couldn't move during daylight hours, freezing, couldn't have any hot meals or drink. Lieutenant Brammel shot in the leg whilst on recce. Dive-bombed by the RAF. On fighting patrol, wounded and captured two Jerrys who gave us valuable information. Jerry dive-bombed and machine-gunned our positions. Only minor injuries. Rum ration. One Polish soldier surrendered to D Company. 15th of Jan, 10 platoon. Captured one prisoner and killed one Jerry using armour-piercing shells. Frenchman surrendered to D Company. We were relieved by C Company and moved back about two miles. Good news today, commando landing 30 miles south of Rome. Back in line again, we relieved D Company. Shelled like hell, another rum ration. Recce patrol, Romano Ridge. Went with Lieutenant Christie on fighting patrol. Ran into a house full of jerrys who let loose with everything. I got wounded. Listener at this point, Owen's great-nephew, Ross, observed that uh, January the 27th was the first time that Owen was wounded, less than a year after joining the Paras. Friday 28th of Jan. Bill Drake went missing from patrol, but remained in enemy lines all night, and returned the following night. Were relieved by 4th Battalion, and moved back into reserve. Went to Lanciano for three days rest with Joe and Bill. Got new clothing and a hot bath. Listener, this was on the opposite side of the landmass to Rome, so presumably was a, a relatively safe area, and somewhere the troops could take a break. 
1st of Feb 1944, still resting. Back in line, heard that D Company patrol of 22 were captured. The next day, D Company sent a patrol to the Romano Ridge and killed 53 Jerrys. Moved back in line again, snowing like hell. 10 platoon ambushed Jerry platoon, captured two. Tonight we were relieved by the Indian division, and we experienced the worst night march ever. We left our positions at midnight and marched all night through flooded rivers and mud up to our hips. Finally boarded trucks at 0500 the following morning. An Indian driver drove us to our billets, but en route drove partially over a precipice. We had to abandon the truck and wait for another, finally arriving at our destination at 07.30, wet, cold and bloody miserable. 21st of Feb. Went to Lanciano for the afternoon for a break. Back in line again the next day, relieving the Indians in the Casoli area. Manned an observation post in a forward position. Still in that position, Joe Cape, an ex-butcher from York, killed and dressed a goat for an Italian family, and in return they provided us with wine and eggs. The next day they sold us a large turkey for 440 lira, 110 each man. 29th of Feb, Daylight Patrol, picked up two POWs. 1st of March, relieved by 4th Battalion, and moved back to village just outside Casoli. Back in line and relieved the 4th Battalion. I couldn't join the platoon as my boots were worn out and there were no size 12s to fit me, so I had to remain with rear HQ. Next day I got my new boots and joined the platoon. 19 XPOWs brought in by 9 platoon patrol. 4 Yanks, 2 New Zealanders, 2 British and 11 Yugos. 11th of March, 0400 hours stood to following warning of Jerry platoon approaching. We opened fire and to our horror, Jerry pushed Italian children in front of them and ran. We captured four of them. C Company patrol capture one Jerry in a house armed with a Schmeisser. Patrol to Guardianelli. We're out in enemy occupied territory, but the area seemed to be deserted. Occupied a house to use as an OP and observed about ten jerrys moving into a shack. We directed our artillery onto the target and it received several direct hits. No further sign of jerry. Good show. Artillery remained in York House for about a week until we were relieved by the Indians and we were transported out by truck about ten miles. 24th of March, moved off by truck at 0700 hours. Travelled all day passing Termoli and arrived at Gardio 1400. We were informed the whole brigade was being transferred from the east to the west to join the Poles in an attack on Casino. Listen, the casinos towards the west coast, about halfway between Rome and Naples, and this was a huge battle over a strategic location on the way to Rome, and it took place January to May 44. It involved four assaults and 75,000 Allied and German casualties. During these battles, the ancient Abbey of Monte Cassino 
where St. Benedict first established the rule that ordered monasticism in the West, was entirely destroyed by Allied bombing and artillery barrages in February 44. So following is Owen's part in the proceedings. From the date, it looks like Owen joined partway through the fighting. 3rd of April, 1944. Packed up, ready to move to the 5th Army Front. Moved forward in the advance of a battalion to Casino area to erect B Echelon. Erected tents for B Echelon and rest camp, battalion moved right forward to Casino area. I was first to attend rest camp. I went into Naples for a day. Listener, I don't like interrupting, but I can't resist the temptation to observe what a strange life the troops were having at this stage. One minute fighting for their lives, and the next they're off to visit nearby tourist centres. 9th of April. Moved up into Casino front line. Only in one night, and were relieved by the rifle brigade. Next day we were resting. Went up into the mountains and saw a pile of dead jerrys, about 15. Back into Casino, positions always under a cloud of smoke from the smoke screens. Terrific shelling and mortaring, defending bridge stood to all night. Still defending bridge, two killed, four injured from D Company. Ginger Statham's trench received a direct hit, but although unhurt himself, he lost his rifle. Relieved tonight by the Royal West Kent Regiment at about 0200. We were moved to Vernafro. Two days rest. RWK was the Queen's own Royal West Kent Regiment. An infantry regiment of the British Army. 19th of April. Moved up to Mealy Head. Slept at the side of the road in the mountains. We moved forward during the following night into slit trenches. No water and not much food. We lived in caves for a few days. Two men from the 6th Battalion were killed by mines and an officer was injured. Still in caves, five men from the 6th Battalion injured. Jerry attacked C Company but ran away with their tails between their legs. D Company attacked. Corporal Stanton injured. 29th of April. Sergeant Pedden shot through the head and killed by Bren gun fire. 3rd of May. Poor old Todd killed from 8 platoon. Direct hit on the dugout. Heavy mortaring still, but still smiling. Water very scarce now. Have to wash, shave and wash clothes in two pints of water. Listener, it's funny, but in his memoirs... Dad mentioned that same two pints for all purposes. 7th of May. Attended church service. Padre came right up to the front line to conduct the service amid shellfire. Next day, massive attack on the enemy. Went in last night. Terrific barrage. Shelling and machine gun fire. Company HQ direct hit. Gardner and Kemp injured. 11th of May, Italian Corps of Liberation, which was fighting on the Allied side, captured MT Maria at 14.30 hours, 12 hours ahead of schedule, with no casualties, got 12 prisoners. 
12th of May. Heaviest barrage of history last night when we put in our big thrust for Rome. 2,000 guns opened up for 40 minutes, non-stop firing. Polish division captured Monastery Hill. 20th of May. River where we get our only water supply nearly dried up. Two ME109s dived on our positions this evening, but didn't open up. Thank God. Should be relieved, but cancelled once more. And twice. Ross said, I've been told by those who served in different branches of the military that one of the toughest things they have to deal with is when the promise of being relieved from the front line is cancelled. It happened to my uncle a lot. At last, Jerry withdrew from Croce. After six weeks of hell, we feel great relief. After six weeks of silence and darkness, they've at last withdrawn. We went forward and had to look round his positions and got bags of loot, sweets, chocks and cigarettes. Listener, that's pretty much the end of the Italian campaign. We're now at the beginning of June 1944, just a week from D-Day in Normandy, France. And Owen's duties weren't in that arena, which is just as well because on the 1st of June, I was cleaning my Tommy gun today and accidentally fired two shots and was accordingly charged and went before company commander and was remanded for company orders. Disciplinary. You're listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 38, Owen McEwen. So that's the end of the Italian campaign as far as uh, Owen is concerned. Um, He's missed D-Day, but he is going to be doing some fighting and he's going to be off to France shortly. 3rd of June. Travelled all day by truck, past Naples and Salerno, arriving at Pontigiano. Listener, at this point, the troops are going south, away from Rome and Naples. 4th of June. Start parachute training again. Tried by the commanding officer. Seven days stoppage of pay for accidental discharge. Training in earnest now. 16 mile march this morning and start PT at 06, 1500 hours every morning. Listener, so D-Day was yesterday. I guess Owen knew it had happened because it was in the British newspapers pretty soon, so they must have told the troops. It's fascinating to think that because there were Allied troops in Italy, Hitler had to engage resources who'd otherwise have been sent to no doubt defend against the Normandy invasion. <laughs> well done, Owen. 8th of June. Went into Pompeii and visited the famous ruins. 11th of June. Three-day scheme starts. 5th Battalion are playing the enemy and 4th Battalion are the British Paras. Made my first jump from a C-47. Revelio 400 hours. Drew shoots at 800 hours. Dropped at 9.20 after flying over the sea. Soft landing. A full day's training again. Prepared for another drop today but was cancelled as wind was too high. Back at camp and did a spot of boxing. Matched against Captain Corby again. Battalion Sports. I won the mile in 5 minutes 22 seconds. And our platoon won the relay. 15 mile route march. 
Map reading. Firing range. Night scheme in the mountains. Marched all night and returned to camp in the early hours. On the firing range all day. Fixed classification on Bren and returned to camp. Then went to the beach for a moonlight swim. 15 mile route march plus a boxing match. Then swimming in the evening. Listener, the next few days are all revolving around training and uh, sports activities. Um, Owen clearly uh, excels in running and boxing because he's won one or two battles on that front. Um, 18th of July, went to Rome for the day, visited the Vatican City and Colosseum. Even though I'm not a Catholic, I got blessed by the Pope. 21st of July, company exercise, company in attack. Left camp late evening, marched all night and arrived at the battle area in the early hours. Had breakfast before the attack. Marched 45 miles in two days. Went swimming in a beautiful lake, Lake Branciano. Six miles wide, 28 miles long. 25th of July, met an Italian senorita, eight miles north of Rome. Elvira. Met Elvira again, spent an enjoyable afternoon and evening with her. Her auntie acted as chaperone. Went into Rome, visited Vatican City. Whilst splitting logs to build a dining area, I badly cut my leg with an axe. Had four stitches. Ouch. Company scheme all day. Excused duty and stayed in camp. Elvira came and fetched a big basket of fruit. Still resting leg, Elvira brought her sister down to meet me, loaded with freshly picked melons and grapes. Stitches taken out. 3rd of August, aircraft jump today. Flew for two and a half hours and finally had to land. Too much ground fog and pilot couldn't see the drop zone. 5th of August, six of us were selected to represent our brigade on a secret mission. Left the aerodrome late afternoon and flew to Naples. We were then driven to 36th American Division HQ. Our job was to visit the whole division to explain to American troops what a British paratrooper looks like in action, how much he weighs, what he carries, and in general explain our job to them in preparation for any future combined action. 12th of August. Briefed for an operation. Lasted two and a half hours. Rest of the day off. Went to brigade concert tonight. 14th of August. Went to the aerodrome and slept in the aircraft. Breakfast at midnight and took off for southern France at 0220. Flew over the enemy coast at 0500 hours and dropped at 0510. France, 1944. So, we are now going to learn about Operation Dragoon. That was the code name for the Allied invasion of southern France on 15th of August 1944. According to Wikipedia, the French High Command had pushed for this previously postponed operation and it would include large numbers of French troops. The goal was to secure vital ports on the French Mediterranean coast and increase pressure on German forces by opening a second front. So, of course, up north, um, the Allies had already invaded on the Normandy coast. 
After some preliminary commando operations, including the British 2nd Paras landing behind enemy lines to secure vital transport links, the US 6th Corps landed on the beaches of southern France under the cover of a large naval task force, followed by several divisions of the French Army B. They were opposed by the scattered forces of the Germans, weakened by the relocation of its divisions to other fronts. Hindered by Allied air superiority and a large-scale uprising by the French resistance, the German forces were swiftly defeated. They eventually withdrew from southern France and established a stable defence line further north. But Operation Dragoon was considered a success by the Allies, It enabled them to liberate most of southern France in only four weeks, while inflicting heavy casualties on the German forces. The captured French ports were put into operation, allowing the Allies to solve some supply problems. So this is Owen's record of what happened. This also starts, coincidentally, on Tuesday 15th of August, so he was one of the first guys in there. Some small arms fire as we dropped. A thick ground mist led us to believe we'd misjudged our timing and had dropped over the sea. Quite frightening. However, we did to our relief land on terra firma and initially met little enemy opposition. One fright, however. Bill Gooden called to me in the darkness and when I joined him, he placed his hand on mine and it was all cold and wet. I said, my God, Bill, you've copped it already. No, no, he replied. We've landed in a grapevine. Do you want them or not? (laughs) I took them from his hand most gratefully, and we had a good grape breakfast before moving off, ready for anything now. We arrived at rendezvous at 07.30 hours. Gliders arrived at 08.20, unopposed, and more arrived at 1800 hours, flying overhead for over an hour. 176 planes and gliders. What a lovely sight. 16th of August. Moved out of Le May to Brigade area. Went on patrol with commanding officer in captured car to contact the French Maquis, FFI. We met them at Draguignon and Calas Crossroads. Listen to the FFI were the French forces of the interior, no longer called the resistance now because France was being liberated rather than uh, under occupation. 17th of August. Tackled about 200 Germans at crossroads. Bob and one Maqui killed, myself wounded. The second time, as nephew Ross remarked. I was taken to French hospital in Calas, and on arrival, I found Sergeant Ramsbottom there also injured. Fright number two. During late evening, a German patrol was seen approaching the hospital, but fortunately we were safely hidden away, and they went off again, empty-handed, I'm pleased to say. Captain Dalby arrived with transport and took us to the 12th FA, First Aid Station, where we were operated on and transferred to the 11th American Evacuation Hospital. Moved on to the American hospital ship, Ernest Hind. Sailed from San Rafael at 17.30, bound for Naples. At sea, issued with washing and shaving kit. Being well looked after, 
had lovely chicken dinner and plenty of fruit and ice cream. The Americans certainly do it in style. Landed at Naples and taken to the 65th British General Hospital. Leg x-rayed and bullet removed from shin. Ouch. Remained in hospital for three days until discharged and taken by field ambulance to number 7 convalescent depot. 2nd of September. Robbo joined me at convalescent depot today and we were both anxious to rejoin the unit, so we decided to discharge ourselves. So, two days later, we deserted convalescent depot and made our way to the nearest aerodrome, American. They supplied bedding and good food for one night and agreed to try and get us on a plane to Rome the following day. Left Naples in the morning and arrived back at camp at 7.30pm. Left with battalion in cattle trucks bound for Taranto. Having an uneventful trip, passed through Foggia and Trani. 7th of September. Arrived at St Pancrazia at midday, 25 miles from Toronto, and went to transit camp. Doc passed me unfit for jumping for five days. Our platoon spent the day off in Toronto. I had to remain in camp. Doc excused me from jumping for a further 14 days, and I had to remain in camp, resting until the 16th of September. 17th of September, went to Bari for the day. On the way home, poor old McHugh fell from the back of the truck and fractured his skull. Spent a couple of weeks training and small parties attending rest camps. 10th of October, 1944. Discarded Tamashantas and issued with red berets again. Listen for the Italian campaign. The Scottish Paras were operating as line infantry, so they proudly wore the traditional headwear of a Scottish infantryman, the Tamashanta. It's a stylish, even jaunty-looking sort of beret, though it's not really a beret. It has a pom-pom on top and a large feather or a badge at one side. But the return to traditional paratrooper duties meant a change in role, and so back to the equally exalted red berry of the paratroopers. Mainland Greece was liberated in October 1944, with the German withdrawal in the face of the advancing Red Army. Greece, 11th of October 1944. Packing ready for another operation. Battalion flew over and dropped on Megaro airfield, 25 miles from Athens in Greece. Met very little opposition, but suffered 25% casualties on the drop zone due to very high winds, making it difficult for the lads to release their chutes. 13th of October. D-Day scheduled for the 5th Scottish. Briefed to drop today, but postponed due to high winds over the drop zone. Next day to Brindisi Airfield, slept next to the aircraft, but once again operation postponed due to extremely high winds. Returned to camp, very miserable, but in hopes of dropping in Greece tomorrow. Ravelli, 0230 hours. Arrived Brindisi Airfield, 0600 hours, and took off almost straight away, dropping on Megaro Airfield at 1020. Finally, Moved into Athens, 1900 hours. Received a tremendous welcome. All Athens turned out.
17th of October, camped in Greek barracks 10 miles outside Athens, which was occupied by Germans just a week previously. But apparently, when they saw our parachutes floating down, they were soon off their marks. Spent the evening in Athens, people gave us a wonderful reception. They held dances and celebrations in the clubs. It was just like London. Drafted into dock area to supply guard for rations until more troops were drafted in. Moved to a new area, marvellous billet in a big private house. Met some very nice Greek people. Went on an 18-kilometre march. We received a terrific welcome from all the villages we passed through. The Greeks were obviously very pleased to be liberated and freed from the presence of German troops. We were showered with flowers, packets of cigarettes and glasses of wine as we marched through all the villages en route. Sergeant McNally received orders to get packed prior to returning to the UK for demob. So Anthony Eden, a senior British politician in Athens. Podge and I met a couple of very nice Greek girls in Athens. Ten mile march and then played football for company against the sergeants. We won 6-1. Fourth of November arrived PR House docks and embarked on the Prince Henry. Food aboard was first class, first freshly baked bread for three weeks. Sailed from Athens at 05.30, bound for Salonica. Briefed at 1600 hours and ordered to carry life jackets at all times, as we'd shortly be passing through a mined area. Weather very rough and ship beginning to roll a little. We're now passing through the mined area, but thanks to a good job by the naval lads, they've cleared paths for our passage, shown by flags attached to buoys. Volunteered to work in the galley today. A good move. Plenty of good food washed down with rum. 8th of November, arrived in Salonica. As we disembarked, Halifax bombers were dropping hundreds of propaganda leaflets near our billets, which turned out to be very comfortable, only four men to a room. Now on 24-hour guard duty. B Company on a ceremonial march through Salonica, preceded by the pipe ban. They made a very impressive sight in full ceremonial regalia. I managed to scrounge a nice spring bed, never had such comfort for a long time. We also installed a fire in our room, only four of us. We can put up with plenty of these luxuries. Spent day in town, went to pictures, then to a nightclub for a few drinks. Moved out to guard over 2,000 prisoners of war, Italians, Belgians, Russians and Germans, on 24-hour guard duty. Off at 1,700 hours and then took 20 jerrys out on fatigues. Relieved by the Royal West Kent Regiment and ordered to pack kit in preparation of move back to Italy. Italy again, still 1944. 15th of November. Marched 12 miles, spent day field firing. Marched down to docks and embarked on a landing ship tank and set sail for Taranto, Italy. Slept on deck all last night, perishing cold. Woke up to be informed that our trip was once again cancelled and we returned to harbour. Disembarked and returned to our old billets. Met a girl partisan tonight, very intelligent, speaks five languages. 
felt I had to be careful in conversation with her. We packed and prepared to move to the Bulgarian border, but the move was cancelled. Did a spot of boxing tonight. Met Lucia. She gave me a snap of herself and a letter, but it was written in Greek. 3rd of December. Left Salonica again. Boarded troop ship HMS Worcestershire, bound for Italy. Docked at Pierraus at 1200 hours and disembarked. We declared war against ELAS at 15.30 yesterday. During darkness, we entered Athens and patrolled the streets all night. Listen, the ELAS was the Greek People's Liberation Army, the resistance. It was considered to be one of the strongest resistance movements in Nazi-occupied Europe. I puzzled for a while as to why we'd be fighting the Greek resistance. After all, Greece was on our side, wasn't it? We'd liberated it in October. But ELAS was just one of three resistance groups. When the country was liberated by the Allies, ELAS didn't want anyone else to govern the country, so they began to fight with basically everyone else, the Allies as well as the other resistance groups. December 44. General Stand 2 at 0300 hours. D Company attacked Acropolis. Lieutenant Conway was killed in vain, as the attack wasn't successful. We attacked with tanks and armoured cars, and we were in position in the Acropolis, and we had great fun sniping at the ELAS troops on top of the buildings. We had our own casualties, though. Oldfield, Craven, Lacey, and Major Hunter were wounded. Spitfires strafed the enemy all day long. Nine platoon attacked Monument Hill. ELAS had been firing on us continually during the day. We killed four and wounded eight with no casualties to ourselves. And then we returned to the Acropolis. Reports came through that the LAS were massing for an attack and had brought mortars up in support. We hurriedly prepared dugouts. ELAS attacked the next day at 0500, but never breached the gates of the Acropolis because Don Company intercepted them. We then brought mortar and machine guns to bear on their positions, and they soon retreated, leaving many dead and wounded behind. Unfortunately, poor old Ricky Ricks from Sheringham in Norfolk was killed in this skirmish. 11th of December. Very quiet day. The Armed Forces Film Unit attended, and we were filming on and off during the day. D Company was attacked again tonight, but successfully drove ELAS back. The RAF started bombing the ELAS positions today with great accuracy and success. And the ELAS general presented himself at General Scobie's HQ today to negotiate terms for a ceasefire. But whatever the terms, they insisted they be allowed to keep their arms. He was soon shown the door. RAF are bombing and strafing all day every day now. We were visited by movie tone news today. RAF continued bombing and strafing ELAS strongholds. Houses going up in flames all over Athens now as a result of the RAF attacks and our tanks blasting holes in the houses to drive the enemy from their positions. D Company took 60 prisoners. ELAS mortared our position, one man wounded. We were told by two deserters that ELAS were massing 3,000 troops to launch an attack on the town tonight. 
However, our RAF and tanks proved too much for them, and in consequence we had a quiet night. 18th of December. Soon after dawn broke, we launched an attack on Monastery Hill in an attempt to rid the hill of the ELAS troops which overlooked the Acropolis, and caused us too much discomfort during the daylight hours. However, we were met with some very stiff opposition when machine guns and mortars were brought to bear on us as we topped the crest of the hill. Poor old Corporal Joe Cape was killed instantly by machine gun fire in the face. His number two on the Bren was so mad that he stood his ground and fired a full magazine and so made sure of Joe's assailants suffering the same fate. 18th of December during the same attack, Farkey was killed and Sergeant Schoon was injured, lost one finger. However, when he was being flown home, he was killed when his plane crashed. This mad war is so sad in many respects. We were pinned down all day until being relieved by C Company at 1900 hours. We were tired, very cold and very hungry as well as being terribly upset over our losses during the attack. We settled down today in a private house, and slept most of the day after yesterday's experience. Joe and Farkey were buried in the palace grounds today. Battalion moved into town. C Company house clearing today, along with tanks and platoons in support. Christmas Day 1944. Glorious morning and it seems very quiet today, thank God. On guard duty for only one hour. Strange, but had quite a nice day, had a good dinner and plenty to drink. Boxing Day 1944. Briefed today on a session of house clearing tomorrow. Tanks in support. Next day cleared a very large area, took many prisoners, also found lots of weapons and arms. Corporal Thomas killed, Lieutenant Brammel and Sergeant Walker wounded. Another day's house clearing captured many more prisoners, Sergeant Scrimgore and Crow injured. Billeted with the military police for Athens, had a nice drink of cognac. General Alexander complimented our battalion for the job we'd fulfilled in Athens. Curly Brayburn killed, Shanks injured by sniper. Company commander's orders today was asked to accept a promotion. 31st of December brought the new year in in grand style, had a party and the people we were billeted with brought out some very old champagne and some lovely liqueurs. Started off the new year with a glorious day and peace terms imminent. Good billets and in good health. Ginger Statham and Bill Cairns joined us tonight. 3rd of Jan, house clearing again. Battalion suffered heavy casualties. Six killed, 17 wounded. Alex shot in wrist. We relieved one house of one bottle of Drambuie and one bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Helped to drown our sorrows. Another day's house clearing. Don Company captured 15 jerrys. Bill's rifle fired accidentally, wounded two men. We went right through Athens today with tanks in support, intending to clear village from ELAS, but met no opposition. Bill up before commanding officer today, remanded for court of inquiry. Result, admonished and given a good telling off. Put on fizzer, 
disciplinary charge for being improperly dressed. Today by Sanders. Result, case admonished. Went into Athens and took a photograph of Ricky's grave. Injections today. TAB and tetanus. The next couple of weeks were a bit of a holiday for Owen. He went to the cinema several times, seeing various films. He had an extra Christmas dinner and went out with a couple of girls with a friend. Come the beginning of February, uh, Owen's back off to Italy yet again. On the 11th of February, uh, we were thrown around like a cork, hell of a lot sick. I borrowed ten shillings from Robbo to buy some stuff from the ship's canteen. We docked at Taranto at 0800 hours and went to a transit camp for a meal. We boarded a train bound for Rome. Listen, for then a couple of months, Owen uh, seemed to spend his time on a what was a pretty well-deserved holiday with uh, some exercises, quite a bit of training, but a heck of a lot of leisure activity spent uh, in sport, playing football, boxing, going to the cinema, and altogether uh, a good break from the war days. The only real blight during that period was uh, some time him and his comrades went on a road walk and run for 10 miles and uh, poor old Sergeant Craw was slashed in the throat by some Italians in Rome and had to have 12 stitches. On the 18th of March, day off, issued with new battle dress, paid for a promotion as from today. And listener, I think that was a promotion to Lance Corporal. And uh, as April 1945 came to an end, the German army was retreating on all fronts, according to Wikipedia. And uh, having lost most of its fighting strength, it was left with little option but to surrender in Italy. General Heinrich von Vietinghof signed surrender on behalf of the German armies in Italy on 29th of April 1945, formally ending hostilities three days later on 2nd of May 1945. Of course, all that was followed up by the final surrender in Europe six days later on the 8th of May, now known as VE Day, Victory in Europe. But for Owen, work of various sorts continues. Owen got involved in all sorts of things, um... And on the 28th of May, he notes special assignment. A section of us were detailed to travel to Lekera to pick up and escort 100 detention prisoners to a military prisoner in Brindisi. 4th of June 1945. Left camp went by road to number seven transit camp in Naples, where we had dinner and continued our journey to number five transit camp. We were told we would wait here until an aeroplane was available to take us back to Blighty. 6th of June. Hooray! Air tickets arrived and we'll be on our way at 0500 hours tomorrow. 7th of June. We didn't require any waking. In fact, I laid awake most of the night thinking of home. We finally took off in a Hudson aircraft at 0800 hours. Only eight seats and all officers, myself the only exception. What a royal way to return home. This must be about the happiest moment of my life. Looking down from the plane, I've seen the familiar red colour of the London transport trains, and I feel sure it's a train emerging from the tunnel at Golders Green. I just cannot believe my luck. 
for we're now descending and have been told that we'll be landing at the local aerodrome in just about 15 minutes walk from home. The next part of our journey is King's Cross Station into Hardwick. But I was so near home, the officer of our trio gave me permission to go home for the weekend and to report back to the barracks on the Monday. I walked home through the familiar streets and, would you believe it, came home to an empty house. I had a chat to our neighbour and within half an hour my mum arrived home having been shopping. I thought the excitement or I should say the shock of seeing me was going to be too much, but she soon recovered, and we didn't stop talking until it was time for bed. You're listening to the Fighting Through Podcast, episode 38, Owen McEwen. Singapore, 1945. Saturday, 7th of July. Left King's Cross late Saturday evening, and arrived at Hardwick about midnight. We were advised that we were to be posted overseas in a few days, and were issued with all our extra kit. We wrote and dispatched the last letter home prior to embarking on a journey, destination unknown. Left Campo 700 hours, entrained, and departed for Glasgow via London. As we passed through Willesden Junction Station, we threw letters onto the platform, hoping they'd be forwarded. Arrived at Gurok Port in Glasgow early morning and embarked SS Corfu by midnight for a dawn sailing. 1st of August. Started issuing free mineral water today. Passed a couple of islands. Must be fairly close to Aden. Pity I couldn't pull in for a while and see my pal Bill. Saw a film tonight. Lily Mars. Listener, does that mention of uh, that movie Ring Any Bells. It should be because, of course, it's also the name of the ill-fated Lancaster whose story I told in a previous episode. What a coincidence. Well, Owen's ship docked at Bombay on the uh, 6th of August, which is uh, a bit of a coincidence because on the 6th and 9th of August, that's when the atom bombs were dropped on Japan. 8th of August, issued with jungle kit, including brown boots. 14th of August, 1945, promoted to full corporal. World Peace Day today. We held a Thanksgiving service, very moving, and I'm sure we were all filled with gratitude. Listener, of course, this was Victory in Japan Day, or VJ Day, so uh, what's Owen going to be doing out here? We'll find out. 23rd of August. Travelled to Poom area for our first taste of jungle training. Slept in the open in torrential rain. Marched all day across country and alongside rivers and finished with a mock company attack. Slept under the stars again. Listen to come the 5th of September. Uh, Owen was boarding a ship again, SS Chitral, uh, to set out for a, another Unknown destination. 17th of September, anchored just off the Malay coast at Port Swattenham. Later in the day, we were advised that the Japanese had surrendered in Singapore, and we were under orders to return to the ship. We remained on board overnight, and spent most of this day white blancoing our belts and slings and generally smartening up in preparation for a ceremonial march through Singapore once we'd disembarked. 
A couple of days later, we mounted our first ceremonial guard on Government House at noon, and this was inspected by Lord Louis Mountbatten and General Dempsey. Dismounted at 12 o'clock, tired but very excited and proud. Listener in the next day, Owen's playing hockey against the RAF and 1-3-2. Good lads. 15th of October. Orders to pack and prepare to move to a rubber plantation for guard duty. We were disgusted at the way the English overseers treated the native workers. Listen for the next couple of weeks, beginning of December, Owen remarked, miserable period, on almost permanent guard duties over oil and paint supplies. 12th of December, departed from Singapore on the SS Queen Emma, bound for Java, which listener is an island in Indonesia, just east of Singapore. 13th of December, heat unbearable. Captain stopped ship in mid-ocean and advised us we could go overboard for a swim with a warning that the waters were shark-infested. Also dangerous rare fish. But for protection, the naval crew lined the decks with rifles to protect us and the more foolhardy went overboard. But it was well worth it. I suppose that was a cakewalk compared with some of the fighting these lads had gone through. I guess they felt pretty much invincible by then. 14th of December, 12 o'clock arrived and we disembarked Queen Emma at Batavia in Indonesia. Next day we were visited and inspected by General Maservi, who advised us we were here to round up and capture Japanese troops remaining in the surrounding areas and who'd been killing and torturing the natives. Listen to this, therefore, was December 1945, three months after the Japanese had surrendered, yet there were still issues with errant soldiers who refused to come quietly. Evidently, the last Japanese soldier to surrender did so with some reluctance in 1974. It's quite a poignant story, and I've put a link in the show notes to it. So the next few days, uh, Owen went out on various raids to capture... Uh, errant soldiers and uh, various sorts of raids and this takes us to the first week of January which is uh, funny because that's when my dad was demobbed after six and a half years fighting and he was on his way home to England where Owen still had work to do and it must have felt strange to dad being back home and maybe reading about stuff that was still happening on the other side of the world anyway back to Owen 6th of Jan Church parade, marched through Batavia with band. Crowds turned out on a brilliant day, through the mace for the first time in public. Of course, um, during this period, Owen had been offered another promotion to uh, quite a distinguished role, I understand, drum major. Um, So I think that was a sergeant ranking equivalent. And uh, good for him. 17th of Jan. Raided an Indonesian junk entering Samarang. Captured two Japs. Ravelli, 0400. Called out to some houses. Japs reported being seen. Too late, they'd fled. Went in search party to Indonesian settlement following report of Japanese cutting off ears, legs and arms. Nothing evident on arrival. 26th of Jan. Went on raids in search of Japs captured two. Listener in between all these bits of uh, 
you know, potentially quite dangerous activity. Um, Owen's, Owen's going to the pub, going to the cinema, playing football and all sorts. So it's quite a surreal existence, really. But uh, it could have been quite disconcerting, really, not knowing from one day to the next whether you uh, were going to be in the cinema or fighting Japanese. But uh, also, uh, a fair while during these few weeks, uh, Owen was doing quite a lot of rehearsing because he's taken up his role as drum major. And uh, one day, he says, 27th of March, rehearsing all morning. In the afternoon, band played during the half-time interval as a football match. I dropped the mace for the first time on parade. Fortunately, it went unnoticed. The point stuck in the turf and I was able to control it and continued as though nothing had happened. So that got me out of buying drinks all round in the sergeant's mess. 30th of March, big day. Band played during brigade march past. General Stopford took the salute. Very proud of the band today. They excelled. Activity as far as the Japs are concerned has quietened down considerably now. Spent some time trying to knock the band into shape. Drill parades all day every day and they're beginning to shape up so we can relax a little and can now enjoy some relaxation. Football, basketball and swimming etc. 9th of May. Regimental Sergeant Major ordered all units to smarten up generally. All uniforms to be cleaned and webbing blankoed and daily drill parades to be introduced. 14th of May, whole battalion on mutiny or 700 hours, and refused all orders. Devonshire Regiment called in and took them all under close arrest and were taken to an ex-Jap POW camp to await trial. Only the officers and NCOs remain on camp now, which includes Owen, of course. Listen, this is a whole new chapter at the end of the war, a revolt took place among the armed forces of Britain in Southeast Asia that's little remembered. The soldiers realised that Britain was retaining them to fight new colonial wars against peoples they'd supposedly just liberated. The soldiers sympathised with the peoples of Southeast Asia who sought genuine liberation. It led to a revolt that affected the army, the navy and the air force with strikes spreading among troops from Southeast Asia to India, the Middle East and North Africa. And I think the following explains what the final straw was for Owen's battalion. In May 46, the Parachute Regiment rebelled in Malaya under the peacetime regulations. Under the peacetime regulations, a kit inspection parade had been called, but spit and polish was just impossible in the jungle mud. The Paras held a mass meeting and twice refused to obey orders. 258 were arrested and taken to Kluang Airfield for a mass trial, some appearing in handcuffs. Over 240 of them were sentenced to between three and five years prison. When news reached back home, there was an outrage that these heroes were being treated in such a way and the striking paras were soon released and the convictions quashed. Furthermore, rather than the strike being subdued by the repression, it began to spread to Britain's colonial forces. But right now, for Owen, it seems like life goes on, because 16th of May, went to Malacca, played for battalion against a Chinese 11 at football, which we won 8-1. And then uh, listened to the several days of 
sporting activities, but I guess there wasn't much else to do. 17th of June. For a change, we went on a pig shoot, bagged two good-sized boars, meat ration for a month. 26th of July. Signed written statement regarding the mutiny. Prosecution arrived and settled in. Defending officers moved in. Court-martial opens tomorrow. 23rd of August. Gave evidence for prosecution today. 12th of September, went to hear closing speeches for both defence and prosecution. 10th of October, went to Royal Scots Barracks for the court-martial. The upshot was, all men were freed, I suspect due to overwhelming public uproar back home. The next day, went to Nissan Transit Camp, drew battle dress etc, and bought a suitcase. Now for Blighty? 22nd of October, stacked kit bags, issued with good old English currency. Really feel as though we're on our way now. 23rd of October, embarked Otranto. Sailed out of Singapore late afternoon. Blighty here we come. Took one last photo of Singapore. Listener, it's funny that Owen returned to England on HMT Otranto because that's the very same ship, the Otranto, that Returned Dad home to Britain after the fighting in Africa in 1943. How good is that? Well, Owen's ship weaved its way and uh, 11th of November passed Gibraltar, sailing through a calm bay of Biscay. And on the 14th of November, tied up at Southampton, disembarked, arrived home at Aldershot, 2130 hours. 15th of November, 1946. Home on leave for 28 days. And uh, Owen's great-nephew, Ross, observed on this, after three years of fighting, the war is almost over, and Owen never saw large-scale warfare again. Thank God. And I'll say thank you, Owen McEwen, for your unforgettable contribution to the first-hand history of the French and Italian campaigns and beyond. And thank you to great-nephew Ross Cleland for kindly making all these diary records available for use in the podcast. Just to wrap up Owen's diary, you might like to know what became of him. Owen recently told his local Scottish newspaper, the Kirk and Tillock Herald, that he was married to late wife Cathy McParlin for 50 years. They emigrated to America in 1960, where they both helped to set up a Jewish community centre in New York and they both returned to Scotland in 1980. In 2017, Owen, then 95, was awarded the Légion d'honneur by the French government for his part in liberating France during World War II. Ross said on Twitter, Great Uncle Owen's life was like a war movie. I find it hard to imagine regular folk like me in such a situation. But that's who he was, just a regular person, fighting for freedom. Hashtag beautiful. Of all the war stories, the one he loved to tell us was when he spent time in London. During a Nazi bombing raid, he didn't know where to go, and a young London couple showed him a shelter in the underground. They danced and sang the night away. Hashtag British spirit against German bombs. 
After the war, he met his wife, Cathy, and they moved to the United States. After many years, they moved back to Scotland, where Cathy died in early 2000. So that was almost 20 years ago. Very sadly, Owen himself died just a few weeks ago in August 2018. R.I.P. Owen. Wherever he and Cathy are now, they must have a lot to catch up on. Next episode. I mentioned earlier that I was going to do a special bonus episode purely covering the feedback I'd had on Stan Perry's interview and uh, that'll be coming out very, very shortly. And uh, after that, we're definitely covering Dunkirk. I must apologise to Facebook visitors who might have read my hint that I was doing Dunkirk this time, but I uh, realised I had so much material I needed to collate and research that I decided to opt for today's episode, which I thought would be quicker. But quick hasn't ended up being easier, or quicker, and uh, it's been a a time coming, so I apologise for that. Back to Dunkirk, revisited. I've got some great bits of news and short stories coming out from all the other Dunkirk episodes, for starters. But above all, I've got some poignant, standout, standalone stories about some British and French fighting veterans whose stories overlap with Dad's in the most remarkable way. I can't see any more, but I nearly fell off my chair when the coincidence dawned on me. So do please listen in to episode 40, Dunkirk, a Frenchman and two Brits. And just as a taster of what's coming, uh, stay tuned for the PS at the end of this episode because I'm going to share with you a story of a mystery soldier and his adventure in getting back on board a ship to England, just to set the scene. Also coming up in the not-too-distant future in 2019 is going to be the final meeting I had with the late veteran Wilf Shaw. And I have an historic recording from sailor Ray Fitchett, who was sunk out in the Pacific. Another episode I'm incubating is a gargantuan memoir from someone who was so young when he fought in the First World War that he went on to fight in the Second World War too, and he wrote two memoirs on the pair of them. I've already read and prepared part one, and I promise you it's great unpublished history. So I'm just waiting for his daughter to dig out part two from her attic. More news to follow. If you like to support the show for free, then at least try and subscribe to it through your listening app. Apple Podcasts is always good, and of course Google Podcasts are now live on the Android phone. So look out for them, and a warm welcome to you if you're listening through Google Podcasts for the first time. If you'd like to support the show financially, then I'm pleased to say I've just added PayPal to the options, where you can pay a one-off sum to treat me to a coffee or more, or you can make a monthly contribution as well. Look out for the donate links to Patreon and PayPal on the homepage at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. I've got to go. Drive carefully, work carefully, and live a full life. I won't be producing another episode this year, so I'll say have a great Christmas or whatever seasonal celebration you undertake. Have a glass of something you like, say cheers to veteran Stan Perry, and have a smashing New Year 2019. If you're listening to this in 2119, 
then wow, how good is that? You have a happy new year too. Thank you so very much for supporting me throughout this year. I really do appreciate it. If you get a minute during this busy time, please fill out my survey on the website at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. As usual, there's a link in the show notes. Before we finish, for my PS, I want to share with you a lovely piece of feedback I've received just two days ago on Apple Podcasts from Jenny Lynch in the USA. Jenny's given the show five stars and said, This is by far my favourite podcast ever. I sit for ten hours a day doing quality control, and this is my go-to content to help the time pass by. It is so gripping. I've been so choked up so many times and constantly get goosebumps all over my body listening to these stories. Jenny, thank you so much for that. I'd like to think your comments reflect the views of many other listeners, so I thought people would like to hear it too. It's been an early Christmas present for me and really made my day. You've inspired me greatly in my choice of story to put in the PS. It's a complete tale, not a cliffhanger for once, and it's a foretaste really of things to come in the next episode. 40. A Frenchman and Two Brits. Or is it two Brits and a Frenchman? I don't know. I'll decide. But anyway, one last story now. I'm calling this story The Last Green Howards Out of Dunkirk. It's taken from the Green Howard Museum's magazine, which tells stories of the regiment from early to modern times, as well as news of any current events. There's a link in the show notes, as usual. Green Howard Museum staff recently received this account of an escape from Dunkirk from Richard Benton, whose uncle Rodney Bland found the Green Howards to be a useful ally on the beach. My uncle Rodney Bland had joined the Territorial Army just before the outbreak of war, and was subsequently posted to France, where, as a member of the Transport Corps, he found himself driving trucks with ammunition, fuel and foodstuffs to the men on the front line. All went smoothly through the phony war until the Germans began attacking. At Dunkirk, Rod was told only infantry soldiers were to be evacuated, so he and his mates were left with the role of defending the bridgehead. After several years it became crystal clear that the evacuation was nearing the end. In Rodney's account he said, Actually we'd gone up to the mole at Dunkirk, but they wouldn't let us on. They said it was for the wounded only, and it was the last boat. The Queen of Kent, a paddle steamer. While we were there we wondered what we could do, and we were very disconsolate. A fellow came up to us who was a sergeant from the infantry with a load of other soldiers. I looked at these men, and the only difference in our uniforms between them and us was that they had got bayonets and we hadn't, because we were motorised troops. Anyway, there were several dead bodies round about that had bayonets on them, so we went to pinch them and put them on our belts. We sat near the other lot of soldiers. When the sergeant came back and said, Fall in the Green Howards, that told us who they were. So we fell in with them, and the sergeant looked at us and said, Wait a minute, you're not A section, are you? I replied, No, sergeant, we're B section. Oh, he said, you might as well stay with us. So that's how we got onto the last 
boat from Dunkirk 